This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Episode 38, covering Open the Golden Gate 2013 from the Lakeview Junior High School in Santa Maria, California on January 25th, 2013. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast feed, or you can find us on our own dedicated podcast feed on all podcast platforms and applications. You can follow us on Twitter at OpenVoiceGate. If you would like to donate to the show, click the link in the show notes. It'll take you to RedCircle.com. Just click the red box that says donate, and you can do a one-time or reoccurring donation. No obligation whatsoever, but we certainly appreciate it, and I would like to thank our previous donors. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal, I'm Max Spears. Join us always with my co-host and friend, Case Lowe. In case, we are now entering the last full year of Dragon Gate USA. It is now 2013, and things are changing very rapidly, and things are really shaking up across the wrestling world and then Dragon Gate USA, you know what I mean? They started they started this year like how they started last year. We were starting in California. Yeah, this is a fun set of shows. I had seen this show before. I had seen next week's show before. The third show of this triple shot is one that is foreign to me. I know, I, I, I should have mentioned it probably on, on that episode, but the Heat 2013 show that we'll talk about in two weeks I think High Spots had that DVD on sale for about five years running at like seven ninety nine, <laughs> and I still couldn't bring myself to buy it. And I know for a fact I bought this show and Revolt twenty thirteen on DVD on HighSpots.com. And they're like, "Do you want the third show?" And I was like, oh, "I'm looking at that card. I don't think I do." So yeah, we're in <laughs> we're in the dying days at this point. I mean, this is the final full year. We're quickly approaching my entry point into Drangate USA. We're, you know, about a month away or so from that. But, uh, you know, we're going to hit a point where I am now pulling the news wires directly from my email. And it's it's an interesting time. I think this is an interesting set of shows just for where the promotion is. Next week, we'll be talking about Drangate Japan, Scott Reed's first and only Japan tour, which happened at the end of 2012, and everything at the start of the year that was going on in Japan. Week three for this triple shot, we'll be talking a lot about El Generico signing with WWE, the indie scene, what was going on in New Japan at the time, and probably some WWE stuff as well, because it is Royal Rumble weekend and Royal Rumble 2013 
is a news and noteworthy show to say the least. But this week, Mike and I not only have a Gabe Sapolsky State of the Union address that we are going to read and analyze, but we have our top 10 matches of 2012. And I think we should get into that, Mike. Yeah, so we're going to do the same thing that we did last year, or not last year, for 2011, where we're going to list our top 10 matches. I've just selected from DGUSA this time. Did you do the same as well? I did DGUSA this time. Yeah, and what I'm going to do when the series is over, and I'll go back there and do this, is compile our list and kind of make this like our giant rec list for DGUSA, because I'm looking at it now, and we'll, we'll get to a point that will be probably close to about 50 matches, just because... In 2009 and 2014, they're not complete years, but the complete years, it's easy to pull a top 10 here. And this was a pretty, it's one that when I was compiling it just overall off the top, we are at a point now where I'm not giving as many four and a half star, or really, I did not have a four and three quarter star match in 2012. But, you know, I'm like looking at this list and it's like looking back at it, still a really big comp tape. And, Whereas 2011, I thought the clear-cut MVP, at least for me, was Pac. I'm looking at this one, and there's a lot of appearances by Mochizuki on here. There's a lot of appearances of Tozawa, a lot of appearances of Shima on this list. But I can't really discern like what would be like my star-rated MVP of DGUSA in 2012. Did you have any big takeaways when you were compiling your list? Yeah, I've got one clear MVP in my opinion. I'll, I'll that'll become evident when I when I break down my list. It's a year that's pretty top heavy. My top two matches, I went four and three quarters on my match of the year for Dragon USA. I flirted with going five stars on, and ultimately because I thought about it, I didn't do it. Uh, but towards even the back half of the list, I've got one match on here that I went four stars on at the time. And my number 10 match, I went four and a quarter on at the time. I'd probably bump that down to four stars now. I don't remember it as fondly. And in 2011, I, I think there were probably 10 four and a quarter to four and a half to greater than matches. So it, the the top end has dipped a little bit. There's still great matches on these shows. And that's almost the frustrating aspect of going through 2012 Dragon at USA is the great matches are still there. But now, you know, you've got a year where you're dealing with Masada, or you're dealing with Tommy Dreamer, or you're dealing with the scene, uh, not even having bad matches, but just having stuff that ages poorly. So it's a, it's a headache-provoking year, but still, there was some greatness involved. Yeah, so I guess, like, let's just go from the bottom list up. Uh, my number 10 match was from the last week in the year. It was Shima versus Sammy Callahan from November 4th. I went four and a quarter stars with this, and it's one of the things where we talked about this, that you did not think that these two would really trade and go at it, but then they decided to kind of go in their tendencies, and I came away with this going like, all right, this really was something, and you know, it was enough on this this list where I had a bunch of four and a quarters this time. It's something where like four four and a half, I had less four and a half star matches, but four and a quarter I had a whole lot but just like maybe it's the memory of oh this is a time where Shima was tested and could have vet carded his way out or gotten real mad but said he played into it and that's what led me to have number 10 do you want me to read my number 10 now yeah l- l- let's just alternate now. yeah, I yeah, just yeah. Wanted... uh my number 10 open the ultimate gate in Miami Ronin of Johnny Gargano and Chuck Taylor versus world one international of Masato Yoshino and Ricochet 
This was a flawed match. Uh, there were times where Johnny Gargano looked kind of lost out there. There were times where Chuck Taylor kind of looked lost out there. But ultimately, four guys that talented are going to be able to find a way to have a great match. I went four and a quarter on this at the time. I would bump this down to four stars now if you asked me. But uh, a solid match. The United Gate belts always deliver great matches. And this was uh, the very same 2012 WrestleMania weekend. You see, I had that one at fifth. Oh, wow. Okay. But that might be live bias, too, because this was the weekend I was at. That's true. So, yeah, no, I, I think your points were all there with saying I was, I was four and a quarter, and I wouldn't turn it down there. Like, I think that's my live influence there. My match number nine was Super Smash Brothers versus the uh, World One International team of Ricochet, Ricochet and Rick Squan. And I went four and a quarter here. This was from November 3rd, and... I feel like this was Super Smash Brothers' best match their promotion. This was the the match where they really were allowed to kind of just go be Super Smash Brothers, and it really came across there. And you had two guys there that it, I don't remember if they really had the PWG matches at that time. I apologize, I'm blanking on that. But the the the, the opponents there were able to have a Super Smash Brothers match, and I feel like it came across really well. And it was again Super Smash Brothers' probably best match in their promotion at that time. Swan and Ricochet would have started teaming in PWG in 2013 because Swan makes his debut at the end of 2012. Then they start teaming in DDT4. Let me quickly do a cage match search to see if those teams wrestled in PWG. And I don't know if they did. If they did, it was DDT 2013, but I am not seeing that come up. So, yeah, that was that was a match that I remember being a little bit disappointed by. I know there is one... Super Smash Brothers match coming up that I am a bigger fan of, but that was the best thing we had seen up to that point in the promotion. My number nine, Enter the Dragon, the third year anniversary show, Johnny Gargano versus Chuck Taylor. You, you see, you were a lot higher on that I quit match than I was. Yeah, it's a it's a match I almost hate. Like, that's the thing. There's such a fine line in that match, but when I walked away from it, they were overly ambitious, but man... It was it was just the right amount of great wrestling for me to really enjoy because it starts really slow, but it's a a weird thing to say. I felt weird saying it at the time, but once Chuck Taylor accidentally kicks that woman at ringside, I really think <laughs> right. the match becomes great. <laughs> yeah, no, no, and yeah, it's just something that maybe it, I think in the moment I was a lot higher on it, but in retrospect I wasn't. Match eight, talk about a Mike Spear special. It is John Davis versus Akira Tozawa, four and a quarter stars from November second. You, you know, I when John Davis and Akira Tozawa had matches together, it just hit me in my soft spot. That's been one of my big takeaways was how John Davis, up until he starts staring people in the crowd for three minutes on his entrance, was really special. And he was even in like in the depths of this right here. But it was was just like you have Akira Tozawa, and I'll get more into Tozawa as we go up the list. He might actually be my MVP now that I'm looking at my list here. But it just was another strong performance that he had with John Davis, and one of those like frustrating things about this this promotion is like this. These were like the kind of matches that, like you watch this and it's like okay, you have you have you have Japanese talent, you have Dragon Gate Japan coming over, and you have John Davis who was was so completely distinct from everyone else in wrestling in 2012, and this should have been a much bigger thing in my mind. Like this feud could have been a money feud. Like put this mat, put the series of matches in Reseda when Tisawa was in Reseda, and oh my god, just imagine the reactions there. I think John Davis is a real what could have been. It just seems like we got probably the worst version of his career if you played it a hundred times, and it's it, it's a bummer because you're right. He had two great matches against Tozawa 
a name that now finds his way onto my list with match number eight, Akira Tozawa versus Samurai Del Sol at Uprising 2012. I thought this was like a King of Gates sprint. I lost my mind watching this match, and it was just everything I love from Dragon Gate USA. Yeah, and, and that was a point that you were you were higher on this one. I think that was kind of took us both aback there. But this is when Samurai Dassault really started to kind of gel in the promotion. I would say. Oh God, I mean, it, well, we'll talk about it when we talk about this show too. Like Del Sol at this point, you understand why there was an an arms race and you know money being thrown at him from at least Mexico and America. And I I will try to do some digging. I really think. He maybe he shot himself in the foot with that Yoshino debut, but I, I watch this guy now and I think, oh my god, what he could have done in Japan. But he ends up with WWE and he's been there for almost eight years now, which is uh I applaud him for doing that, and I am also sad at the fact that he has done that. Yeah, and it's it's something that's just you know we're gonna have a dull soul conversation later on in the show, but. Match seven was for the vacated Open, the uh, United Gate Championship. This was Shima and AR Fox winning the titles against Rich Swan and Ricochet from Chicago. I-, I gave this one four and a quarter stars. And you know, this was a this was a tag team that I mean, it was just was such an issue. If like Spike Mohicans vacate, then you have this Yoshino and Ricochet team very quickly that Yoshino decides I don't like working in America anymore. I- I'm good. I'm good back in Japan and. It really took until Shima and Fox taking the titles for one Fox to really be really kind of like stepping up in the main event player way that we'll talk about on the show. But also, I mean, like you have like these four guys and it just all worked. And especially with how things were at the Congress Theater, it was just such a excellent match. My number seven match, AR Fox and Shima versus El Generico and Samurai Del Sol from the night before Untouchable 2012. Super innovative match, lots of high spots that delivered. Uh, the match fell apart briefly when Generico went to the back, and that is why I have it at 7 and not better on my list. But the AR Fox Shima tag team, another one of those what could have been. It just seems like they had excellent chemistry as partners, and for a variety of reasons, that team ended up fizzling out. Yeah, and that match is my number six. It's the only reason to watch a Taylor's Michigan show. <laughs> it is that good of a match. Well, Mike, my number six is AR Fox and Shima versus Ricochet and Rich Swan from End of the Dragon. Oh, so, we just so, that, so that worked them. out nicely. Yeah, yeah, there we go, there we go. So now we get to our top fives. My top five, as I mentioned before, this was the main event for the vacated, once again, open the uh, United Gate Championship. This was the Yoshino Ricochet versus Johnny Gargano and Chuck Taylor match that we talked about earlier the, from the Mania weekend on 3.30. Yeah, we've probably got the same top four. I wonder if the order will differ, but I think we've got the same top four. My number five, the four-way from Freedom Fight that we just watched last week, Gargano versus Tozawa versus Ricochet versus Fox. This is one of the strengths that Gabe has. I think he's really, really good at laying out these multi-fall, multi-man matches. I still... I'm obsessed with the way the Kamikaze USA versus Chikara Sekigun match from 2010 was laid out. That feels like we watched that a million years ago, but I thought that was a perfectly orchestrated elimination match. And this four-way, with the high spots from Ricochet, the finishing sequence from Tozawa and Gargano, that was all great. But it is the structure of this match that I really fell in love with, and I went four and a half on it, and it is my number five. So that's my number four. So I'm wondering what you think okay. is the match. Yeah, I, I, well, no, I, we, 
we've got to have so you're missing something from my list, but I can't figure out what it is. So go ahead. Sorry to cut you off. So yeah, no, for the reasons you stated, that was my number four match, my number four match, four four and a half stars all the way up from here. Uh, it just was something that like I probably could have gone a little bit higher on this if it wasn't for the fact that I'm still like my inner fan comes out and I'm mad about Sawa not winning the title there. <laughs> and it's something that like, I'm like, look that like stuck in my mind as I was watching open the golden gate 2013. Like, Oh, tis, you could have had like a champion versus the big outsider match here. And you didn't have it because you kept the bell on Gargano who was in a tag match. So. Yes. I, I, I understand your pain. If there was, I, I think we've hit the point where if there was a time to put the belt on Tozawa, it would have been there. You could have made the claim that after his match with uh, Pac at open the golden gate 2012, which is my match number four, you probably should have changed course and given Tozawa the belt after that. This Tozawa versus Pac match. It is a slow building match. It's not like their Atlanta match, which was much spottier and much faster paced. This match is a slugfest. I mean, this match is mean and brutal and violent. And I came away from this at four and a half, right on the edge of four and three quarters. These guys never had bad matches. And I think this is the best one they had together. So, Case, here's our discrepancy right here. I had this match at four and a quarter, and this was my, my number 11. Wow, a fake Akira Tozawa fan, it sounds like. Don't ever question my Kira Tozawa valor here. Uh, I remember, like, when we were recording this episode, like, you were going nuts about this match. I was like, I thought this match was really good. Like, I thought this match was great. I went four and a quarter on it. I'm not thinking about it flirting all-time category, but I do know why you do that, and that makes complete sense with me. So then I guess our top three might be chalk. It'll be really funny if it ends up that we have another big disparity. Uh, Mine is also from Open the Golden Gate 2012. Spike Mohican, Shima, and Ricochet versus Masaki Mochizuki and Susumi Yokosuka. God, I loved how much this matches. And maybe a little bit of this, me liking this, is is uh, Sheriff Loki coming out with his book report afterwards. But this show, like, I know we've talked about this actually with Alan Farrell about, like, this is a show that I don't think a lot of people have seen that they should go out of the way of watching. But, like, the one-two punch of these two matches, I mean, my God. Did they really do something on this? Like just one-off show at the at the venue that they all hated. It is my number two match, and I for for all of the reasons that you said, the one I have a slight notch above it is Miami Weekend once again. Open the Ultimate Gate: Akira Tozawa versus Masaki Mochizuki. So that's your number three is Masaki Mochizuki versus Zawa. What's your number three? That is my number three. Okay. Okay. Wait. Okay. Yeah. So. 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 Three is Tozawa versus Mochizuki. Two is Shima and Ricochet versus Mochizuki and Susumo. Okay, okay. I, I see how you're listening it up. Then what I'm guessing is your number one match was my number two match. This was the traditional six-man tag. It was Hulk and Akira and Loki versus Masaki Mochizuki, Pac, and Ricochet from WrestleMania weekend. Four and a half stars. One of the, the sleeper match in the series. I think we kind of decide there about how awesome this was and just like a completely different style dragon gate six men than all the ones that came before it yeah this is my match of the year i watched it twice because i watched it once and thought that might have been a five-star match and then i watched it again and said no four and three quarters but yeah this is this is as good as it gets this is my style of wrestling with guys that can fly and guys that can kick hard and doing it in a six-man tag match where the action never stops i i think this is one of the best matches in the promotion's history and my number one match, Akira Tozawa versus Masaki Mochizuki. How could anything else not be my number one match, guys? 
No, I should have. I should have figured that out. I think around my match four, I was like, <laughs> oh, wait a minute. It's Tozawa versus Mochizuki. Of course, that's Mike's match of the year. And in a fitting match of the year at that. Yeah, yeah. At the peak of their rivalry, it simmered down from their cork and that they had earlier in 2011. Just hard-hitting stuff. One of those matches that there was some form of, of if, if you all listen back to the episode that we did with Alan Forel, some form of like psychic bond that Alan and I had that night that we'd not realize until years later on that match. This was one of those matches that I go back and I think about. I was like, oh, I cherish being able to see this match live because this was a match that, if anything, for where I was as a Dragon Gate fan, seeing this match live was like, all right, this is why I follow this promotion so much. And it kind of just was a real remarkable experience there. So that was my match of the year. Mike, with that in mind, we're going to put a bow on 2012 with the Dragon Gate USA and Evolve State of the Union address from Gabe Sapolsky. He broke this down into three main parts that we'll talk about the roster the live events and the distribution he has a conclusion at the end which is very genuine Gabe talks about raising his son and how that's kind of changed his life I it, it's so it's so nice we don't need to get into it like I have no commentary to add onto that but let's go through the state of the union we'll go through it one section at a time and we will start with the roster portion where Gabe says, We are extremely proud of the roster we have built over the last few years. It's been an amazing journey watching the new generation grow and develop into today's new stars. This is the strength of Drangit USA and Evolve. 2012 was a landmark year. We said goodbye to Pac and Brody Lee, who both signed WWE contracts. Recently, we saw John Moxley, who has an extensive history in Drangit USA and Evolve, make a sudden impact in WWE as Dean Ambrose. These developments prove that the new wave of Major League talent is on the current Drangit USA and Evolve roster. Drangit USA and Evolve does not have tomorrow stars. Our roster features the best going today. We have strengthened our roster this year with over 15 talents signed to contracts. In addition, our positive work environment and growth potential has allowed us to re-sign several of our established stars to multi-year contracts. This means we have secured a tremendous roster for you to follow. We are pleased that several talents have been able to travel to Japan to have a strong presence in Dragon Gate. Ricochet is a legitimate star in Japan, Open the Freedom Gate champion Johnny Gargano, half of the Open the United Gate champions A.R. Fox, Rich Swan, Larry Dallas, and now Scott Reed have all had successful tours of Japan in 2012. Another positive development was the arrival of guest stars, particularly El Generico. He has been a significant force in both Dragon Gate USA and Evolve after his unforgettable surprise debut at Mercury Rising 2012. Other notable guests include Colt Cabana, The Young Bucks, Sarah Del Rey, Tommy Dreamer, Sabu, and some extreme favorites at Evolve 10. There is no telling who will show up in 2013. This this might sound like a lot of hype and bragging, but we are proud of our roster. We are very excited about the possibilities going into 2013. Yeah. So, Mike... We lost we lost Pac, we lost Brody Lee because he did sign in 2012, although I think Gabe blew it with his last weekend in the promotion in 2011. We didn't even mention that the Shield debuted in November of 2012. So we're seeing already the product of a post-ROH, uh, a post-ROH Gabe Sapolsky, him producing more talents that are ready for the major league level. And if there is one thing you can compliment Gabe about is that he did that consistently for almost 20 years. Yeah, and if anything, if you want to like start the true pipeline, it started in 2012, right? Because you have Pac, who immediately was 
and and we'll probably be getting into this like the creation of NXT and then how NXT kind of evolved and how he kind of became one of the early stars in NXT kind of from the jump and then Brody Lee we've talked a lot about how Brody Lee it was probably the most squandered person over the last decade but there's a legitimate pipeline there and you talk about it's interesting how he phrases the people who have traveled to Japan from the roster in 2012 like did you find that kind of remarkable the way he kind of spun it there because I saw that because when I heard you read this and I know I've read it at the time it comes across really in retrospect as a whole lot of spin of that relationship I didn't pick up on it here I I mean I, I guess I kind of see what you're saying he's right it's not game speak it's right to say that Ricochet was a legitimate star at least in the Dragon Gate universe Correct. in Japan yes. but I guess what are you picking up on here so Maybe this is just me comparing and contrasting that he makes emphasis on Johnny Gargano, who didn't get over in Japan. Like, being frank, completely crash and burn there. A.R. Fox was a bad, uh, I don't want to say chemistry fit. It just was something that was just not necessarily going to go out, go very well. Scott Reed will get into. And then you compare it to the people that they brought over from 2009 to 2010 and into 2011. Ricochet, which he mentioned... Uha Nation, and then Rich Swan, Three guys that I feel solid enough saying this, that I consider those three guys pure Dragon System guys at this point. And it's just something that like naturally I'm doing a bit of compare-contrast in, in a lot of ways. Like, And of course, like Larry Dallas now has a continued relationship with Dragon Gate to this day. And that's something that like maybe in a lot of ways that is like the vestige of that classic of 2011 ends up being Larry Dallas because he still to this day is affiliated with Dragon Gate and he's someone that is on the commentary team when when, when we're not in COVID and he's able to go to Japan, right? So I I guess that's where I'm maybe this is something where maybe I'm not as generous to Gabe Sapolsky as you are at times, but this kind of read off to me as Gabe speak for a lot of things and kind of, in a way, inflating things when in reality, maybe it's power of hindsight, we're not as big of a deal as he made them out to be. I understand your point. I think specifically with Ricochet, Swan, and Uha, Ricochet, yes, he's a Drangate guy. Uha, yes, because once he comes back from injury, he's a Drangate guy that sometimes does indies. I mean, Swan is over there all the time, but I, I, I Swan is half and half for me. I really think that is uh, both parties get credit there or no parties get credit there, but I, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, but it's just interesting, like, and then, like, the guest stars, like, imagine how this promotion would have looked like if El Generico did not show up in the back half of 2012. Yeah, that would have, I would have liked to have known what the plans for Samurai Del Sol would have been, because he's not only teaming with him on multiple Dragon Gate USA shows, but they headlined three different Evolve shows with Generico versus Del Sol. And, And out of the guest stars... I would say that he's the one that has held up in comparison to all the other ones. Like, I remember when you said Sarah Del Rey, it kind of jogs them in my mind going, like, oh, yeah. Like, they were doing, like, this, like, kind of nascent uh, women's division and Evolve at one point that kind of went away after Sarah signed with WWE as a trainer. And there was also Mercedes Martinez at that time. But the, the well, guest that was, stars that was thing. was early Evolve. That was, like, the first right. few shows. Sarah comes in for one show in 2012, because this is when Shine launched in the summer of 2012, and so they did a Shine offer match at an Evolve show. I don't really feel like litigating the history of Shine. It's just not something that I care to do. If our listeners feel differently, we can start throwing in Shine results, but I I don't anticipate that to be the case. (laughs) 
no, no, no. I, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, live events. Let's talk about this. Gabe says it was a very mixed year for Dragon USA and Evolve live events. We entered 2012 with the goal of running more live shows. We felt that only running three Evolve cards in 2011 stalled the momentum of the promotion. In addition, we felt there was too long of a gap between Drangate USA weekends in 2011. The solution was to form a union between the two brands, run more Evolve cards in between Drangate USA weekends, and build momentum. This was both a success and a failure. The first failure was losing three of our mainstay go-to buildings due to various reasons. BB Kings in Manhattan wasn't happy with the food and drink sales, and the former ECW Arena in Philly and the Ace Arena in New Jersey both closed down. This left us without any homes in the Northeast. We are still struggling to find a new one. We do hope that the Flyer Skate Zone in Voorhees, New Jersey, which is a first-class centralized facility, will be our new home. This has led to us to try this has led us to try new arenas with mixed results. The year started out with hot with great crowds in Philadelphia for the final arena show, Los Angeles, and Miami. However, we were unable to draw good crowds in new areas like the Carolinas and Florida. We also had a decent results in the Midwest and Toronto, and were devastated by Hurricane Sandy on the last Dragon Gate USA triple shot. However, we do feel positive about the fact that we tried to run some new areas. We hope to continue that in 2013 and even build on what we started this year. We do not rule out running shows anywhere. We are very pleased with the in-ring quality of the shows and felt more events provided a stronger product for you to follow. The outlook for 2013 is on the upswing. WrestleCon could be the biggest crowds in Dragon USA and Evolve history. There are some leads in the New York City area for a new venue. A West Coast return is in the works. Ding, ding, ding. That is the shows we are talking about. And there is some other stuff in development. We recognize a crowd can make or break a show. We will do our best to bring the most exciting action with a fun, good live atmosphere. So, I think he's being pretty fair there. I don't think that he's necessarily doing gay speak a lot there. Um, I would say that he is being honest about how bad the idea was to run North Carolina. Like, that was something that I find bizarre to this day, other than them it being a good stop before getting hitting Atlanta, but like Florida, I get why you do the third show there. And that was kind of his style there for the weekend. And it made sense. The one thing I will say is as someone who is strictly watching DGUSA things, having those evolve shows between where they do stuff on evolve shows and then barely refer to it on screen makes it a very confusing experience. I think that's an active detriment. Yes. It, it's, it's crazy. I, I, we talked about this at the time, but Gabe, horrifically bombed in the Carolinas twice. And that's not even a shot at him. That's just crazy that that both times he tried to run there, they're probably the worst houses he ever had as a booker, which is just wild to think about. Um, Florida ends up turning around for him, and that would be a few years later, but Evolve does find a home in Florida. And the, the thing that Gabe is absolutely right about is they lose BB Kings, the arena, and luckily the Ace Arena, but that no loss there. Yeah, no, no that's there. that's a come out even if not ahead there. But it's it is worth noting like that is a really tough situation for Drangate USA. Now the flip side of that is Gabe talks about finding new markets, going back to the Midwest, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And after this weekend of shows, with the exception of the final two shows in New Orleans, they are in New York for every show from here on out, New York or New Jersey. Yeah, and it's something that other than when they find their place in Tampa, in the Tampa area, in Ybor City, 
he really kind of focused because he goes from these places that he ran to New York to Laboom for Evolve. And they, he does have places like Joppa that he would stop in later Evolve. And he would constantly try to find places in the Midwest that it does not ever feel like that Midwest ever becomes a true home there. But it's something where, you know, that this becomes a very regionalized promotion. Like the Carolinas, as I said when we were talking about that show for Open the Southern Gate, it is a very unique market. Atlanta is a very unique market that we're only kind of now seeing kind of how to run Atlanta pre-COVID, and it's something that the Carolinas, I still don't think there's a way really to run Indies in the Carolinas and be successful at it, to be quite honest. But, you know, it, it, you can't blame him for those venues closing because it affected everyone. I mean, Chakara really felt it in a way, and that's when Chakara really started touring, and arguably one of the reasons for the shutdown was how much they were touring other than bringing over... 20 Joshi wrestlers, you know, I mean, other than that, other than that, you know, like, but you know, it's something that I think like that he gave, he, other than the whole union thing, I think that's a pretty honest depiction of the indie landscape then, especially when you look outside of PWG. Let's talk about distribution. This is his biggest paragraph. There's a lot here and I will read all of it. Some of it is no longer relevant, but I'm just going to read the whole thing because it's game speak and it's nice to read this after not having news wires for most of 2012. We realize this is a controversial area with DVD versus iPay-Per-View distribution. We also know that we promised that DVDs would be out faster, and while we while we have had several recent re- recent releases, we haven't delivered. You don't want to hear excuses, you just want DVDs. Now we will fill you in on what's going on, so here's the deal. That opening paragraph, by the way, yeah, painfully, painfully Gabe Sapolsky, but I digress. Drangit USA and Evolve is a mom-and-pop small business operation with limited resources, both financially and from a manpower perspective. Late last year, we lost a key member of our staff for several months due to a medical emergency. This was a huge setback. However, we were getting back on our feet with DVD production when we had to make some choices. It is no secret that DVD sales are down everywhere. You just have to walk into the shrinking DVD section of Best Buy to see that. Now, don't get us wrong. We still know that DVD collectors are plentiful, and many of you want to own our shows. We appreciate that, and we will always serve you with high-quality DVDs that play anywhere in the world with top-notch packaging and production. Our recent DVDs, Mercury Rising 2012, Open the Ultimate Gate 2012, Heat, and Evolve 11 Finley vs. Callahan DVDs prove that. We were faced with a choice earlier in the year, put our limited staff and financial resources into DVDs, or into WWNLive.com iPay-Per-View. It is clear that iPay-Per-View is the future. We heard your demand for it. The growth in iPay-Per-View sales, both live and on-demand, backed that up. We made the decision to put our resources for the time being into iPay-Per-View. We have been very pleased with the results. We had flawless streams all year except for an under-five-minute hiccup due to human error in January, which won't happen again. WNLive.com on demand also has every Drangit USA and Evolve show in history available to watch at any time. And then Gabe goes on to plug a very confusing year-end sale. Uh, also, he notes, in addition, we have seen the growth of several partners, including Kayfabe Commentaries, Combat Zone Wrestling, Extreme Rising, Family Wrestling Entertainment, and $5 Wrestling, all presenting live iPay-Per-Views through WWNLive.com. The emergence of this platform also paved the way for the Shine promotion to be launched. 
In addition, several other promotions have taken advantage of the on-demand option to showcase their brand. This has all happened in under two years. We are also th- we are thrilled with the results, and the best is yet to come. There will also be a WWE Live Roku channel launched in early 2013. This is all good news for DVD collectors. Why is that? This means that we have gotten the WWE Live established. The WWE Live iPay-per-views established so we can turn our resources back to DVD production. We will get the Dragon USA and Evolve DVDs you want in your hands. In the meantime, we do have several great DVDs for you to catch up on, take advantage of our winter sale, yada, yada, yada. Mike, the important thing coming out of this, Gabe Sapolsky promises a Roku channel in early 2013. Do you know when the Roku channel ended up launching? I don't believe Dragon USA was a thing when the Roku channel got announced, got launched rather. November 8th, 2014, so you would be correct. I was right. I was right. <laughs> so there's a lot of like interesting things here, and I want to pose like a one of those big environmental questions after this that probably, I, I think this is kind of the best place to put it. Like This is something that I would really would love to do like a full series on, but just like first and foremost, the, the person that he's referring to, and we talked about it on the show when it happened, was Sal Hamawai had major health issues in 2011, and that kind of stagnated things and that's why what he was referring to there um it's interesting because the one thing that it it's indisputable that Drungate usa and wn were doing much much better than ring of honor at the time was their iPay-per-view and video on demand service we've talked countless times about how bad go fight live was and how badly ring of honor just kept on messing up at iPay-per-views, but really after all the, the nuts and bolts and the kinks were kind of figured out, they had a model here that was working. Like, I think that's fair to say, Case, right? Yes, it will quickly deteriorate in 2013, but as of now, it is working. And it's something that, like, the DVD thing, as as an archivist, Case, I'm going to put on my archivist hat for a here second. Here we go. The fact that they were not so... um focused or the fact that they had such a delay here that would be a thing that i believe dgusa dvds were finally being released for the first time up until 2015 am i right in saying that i forget exactly when they stopped being released i mean i well i i, I will do some research on this i know for a fact that the final dragon usa show that is released on dvd is mercury rising 2013 the last year right. of shows are never seen in the physical format but I don't know when those DVDs came out. I own them. I'm sure I can look at a high spots order buried deep in my email to find out when I ordered them <laughs> because I probably ordered them the day they came out, but I'm not sure exactly when that was. And this is a major thing, and it's something that I've talked to people in private. We've talked about on the VOW Slack, and it's kind of a cause celeb for me, and it is the idea of we live in an era that now everything is streaming, and in a lot of ways... Gabe is kind of uh, kind of ahead of the curve in a way, and he was able to get things working for a while. We'll get into the 2013 things when we come to it, but he was able to get things working. But as we've learned in 2020, Case, what happens to WWN in 2020? Well, suddenly they run a sale advertising that you can get all these great shows for very cheap, and then those shows disappeared. And that's the big thing. We live in what Brandon Thurston says, the content era, versus the events era and this is all content and the thing is unless you have the physical form of the content you don't own the content and 
it is frustrating. It's something that as a consumer, there's very little economic justice using one of those big red words there. But it's something that like really, it's something that I think Kay is pretty much, ever since you've known me, I've always been like, all right, this is something that I, I don't even call myself like an activist about it, but it's something that I'm very passionate about is the idea of you, it's, it's reliant on their consumers to have their own backups, to have the own thing of the things that they own properly, because the VODs, you're, you're getting a license, basically. You're getting access for that. But as we saw through WN, and as we saw through Froslam, even earlier on, that you can't trust the companies here because they'll take it. Yeah, no, I mean, you've drilled it into my head to a point that I now talk about it to my friends, and I, I don't do a good enough job of backing up everything that I you know, air quotes, own digitally, but it's a huge issue. I, I fear it with music all the time. I mean, there's, because of the music I'm into that is is perhaps not exactly super well protected, there's bands I like that get pulled from streaming services all the time, and then you just don't listen to that music anymore. And that's that's gravely concerning. So that's why I own physical music. It's why I was still buying hard copy DVDs through 2016. And then, oh well, Flow Slam launched, and I think that was probably what when I said, "Okay, let me go, let me go all digital here." That obviously backfired, but yeah, no, you you make a great point. I mean, it, it sucks. I, you know, he's dragging at USA shows. When we started this project, they were all available on the on-demand service, and now they're not, and it's a bummer because it's harder for people to follow along. Yeah, and. Just to like make a musical analog, uh, in case you might be familiar with it, I don't know how many listeners knew it too. Have you ever heard of the 2008 Warner Brothers fire? Uh, yes, I was. Yes, I interviewed somebody last week uh, for my shoot oh, really? job, for, for, okay. my, for my shoot job that lost a bunch of stuff in the fire. And now, granted, he he's a little bit older, and I just I typed in the question to, to I, I was producing an interview, and I wanted to know about. It. He's like, yeah, I, I know I lost stuff, but I don't even. I don't even know what I lost. And it's like, oh my God, like that's horrific to think about. And that's like the scary thing about all this is, so the 2008 Warner Brothers fire was, there was this giant archive that Warner Brothers maintained. It wasn't even necessarily all Warner Brothers property that they had a fire and a significant portion of recorded music and history was lost that day. And not, and it's like one of those inferior things. So it's like some really important things. It's not just music. There's other files and other things that were archived that are lost there. And, and wrestling, in a lot of ways, does not have the archive system and will never have the archive system because of the certain proper practices that need to be put in place will never be to put in place in the wrestling industry. Mike, Mike, we can't find 2014 Dragon Gate Infinities. I've been hunting down some of these shows for years. We can't find them. They're gone. Once they were, were taken off in daily motion, they just disappeared. It's terrifying to think about. I mean, I tried to do an all right job. If I see footage that I know, or at least that I think will be valuable someday, I do my best to pull it, but I don't do a good enough job. And, you know, luckily, I think at our level of wrestling fandom, we just, we we have people that are like-minded, but this is a, a conversation bigger than wrestling, quite honestly, of just, you right, know, yes. the stuff, this stuff exists in the cloud or whatever, but it can be taken down at a moment's notice. And it's incredibly frightening. And it's one of those things that, I am sad that I only kind of had this realization a few years ago versus when like in the time for this happens, because like there's, when you go look at wrestling, there's so much lost wrestling now that unless, and I highly doubt it as an archivist, I highly, highly doubt it 
that there's that there's like complete territories that are lost that are never going to be found again. There's things that are contingent on corporate responsibilities. There's things that are contingent on budget line items thing because it is not cheap running a temperature controlled and clean vault that you know the onus is on us and it's one of those things that whenever i start thinking about it i get really really depressed i didn't mean to bring a bummer down here but i had one question that was not even related to this that i wanted to ask you and i know we're kind of going along on this subject but this is kind of the only other time i think we could really talk about it unless we talk about it after the series is over and who knows i remember it but so gabe launches this platform wwn live and as you mentioned he's getting other promotions involved in the mix ccw probably the most notable one but also kayfabe commentaries five dollar wrestling which was a thing for a long time oh god yeah i mean i look i have fond memories of watching five dollar wrestling i i loved what cabana and DeRosa were doing and my question is do you think that there might have been a route forward knowing how the last eight years since this message or around eight years since this message came out do you think there would have been a path a path forward seeing how the uh, wrestling content landscape is in 2020 that if gabe would have pivoted in a way if he would have focused on developing this thing knowing what we know now could this have been a lifeline for dragon gate usa i don't know if it could have been a lifeline but to be heavily critical of Gabe while praising him at the same time, you know, he figured out the digital network before WWE did. We're still a year away from the network launching. And Mike, you would know better than me. I mean, I don't know what streaming was. I just don't remember what streaming was like at the time. This is probably around the time that I started dipping my toes into the water of a Hulu and and, and Netflix streaming. But Gabe had a centralized platform with all of his shows on demand, plus CZW, plus kayfabe commentaries, which that was also a thing. I mean, it feels like one day they just stopped being relevant, and that is probably the day Stone Cold Steve Austin launched his podcast, which led to every other old wrestler launching their podcast. But, I I mean, kayfabe commentaries was a thing. $5 wrestling. FIP is, we'll talk about FIP in just a little bit. FIP's returning. You have Shine. He had a centralized network. And I don't know if it could have been a lifeline, but, you know, Gabe's, one of his biggest faults has always been just the digital production side of things. His website looks like shit. And this streaming service, which, I mean, I started using it in the summer of 2013. It felt dated in the summer of 2013. And it was never really revamped. It was still impossible to use up through, I think, December 2019 is when I canceled my subscription finally. And that was with Club WWN, which I was a day one subscriber when it launched. And then he finally ran me away from from his business. But this, this whole concept of WWN Live should have been a more successful venture. And he ended up making money, selling it to WWE. Good for him. But like you talk about, you know, we don't have DVDs for post-Mercury Rising 2013. The WWE Network is not uploading Bushido Code of the Warrior 2013, which is the next show to the network. And that's a shame because that has a match that is very important in the careers of T-Hawk and Ata. Uh, very important in the career of Uha Nation and Anthony Nice, and it's a great. There's a great Young Bucks match on that show. Uh, 
I mean, we have we have that show because we're smart and we preserve some of this stuff. But that show is just not; it doesn't exist anymore. Nobody's gonna ever see it, and it's frustrating to think about. Yeah, and it's something that ever since this library was acquired, I said, "Don't hold your breath." And as everything that's happened since then has kind of proved that. No, they Don't can't even do breath. the evolve uploads, right? They're uploading best of evolves, and they're uploading it for Adam Cole. Right. Yeah. So it's it's something that it's such a frustrating thing to, for me to look at in hindsight and i knew that because you showed me this ahead of time and i knew like this was going to be me on my lonely soapbox for whomever is listening to this but it's something that just i'm heated about this as we're recording at midnight <laughs> like we, we need i could go on about this for a legit hour to be fair so we should move on before i start going my full on screed against uh ownership and maintenance of of libraries maintenance of archives and how the whole wrestling industry betrayed its past over the last 15 years. Mike, the one thing I will say is that you've made me legitimately care about this issue over the past few years, and I applaud you for that. It is now something that I also take very seriously. But let's get back to Dragon USA. A few brief newswire notes. December 7th, it is announced that former WWE superstar John Morrison will be appearing for Dragon USA at their January 25th show at the Lakeview Junior High School in Santa Maria, California. The company is expected to release further details following the Evolve 18i pay-per-view tomorrow. Morrison was said to have reached out to WWE about a potential return. However, the decision is all as all within WWE ultimately are decided by Vince McMahon. So I know we went long on the intro, so I want to just very quickly go through John Morrison's run on the indies up to this point, and then we'll talk about after the main event, his run on the indies after that match. But he leaves uh, for the indies at the start of 2012, wrestles Shelton Benjamin in the Philippines, wrestles Finley for NEW in New York, and then a guy named Luke Robinson for NEW. That was one of his last matches. He shows Oh, up. do you know who Luke Robinson is? I don't. Uh, he was the runner-up in the latest Tough Enough, the one that had, uh, at this time, Silent Rage. I will take your word for it. Uh, John Morrison then went to NWA Championship Wrestling from Hollywood and beat Austin Draven. He did a tour of Puerto Rico where he and Carlito wrestled to a DQ. I'm sure that match is abysmal. But the next night, Epico and Primo versus John Morrison and Shelton Benjamin. He wrestled for the Billy Corgan Project Resistance Pro Wrestling in Chicago, Illinois in the summer of 2012, beating Robert Anthony. He would then go back to New York for 2CW, a promotion that, if you weren't around for it, that means nothing to you. But 2CW was a really interesting promotion. They booked John Morrison over Sammy Callahan in August of 2012. He does a few other random indies, wrestles Sanjay Dutt in Florida, wrestles a three-way with Briar Wellington and Matt Hardy at the Gathering of the Juggalos Bloody Mania in August of 2012, and then does a UK tour, but meaning one match, where he defeats Noam Dar for Preston City Championship Wrestling in December of 2012. And that leads him here to this Evolve show, or this Dragon USA show, rather, which kind of felt like a big deal, and I think that was solidified on December 31st with the announcement that Akira Tozawa signed the open contract to wrestle John Morrison. So we get Tozawa versus Morrison, which, Mike, at least on paper, sounds like a, like a nice match. Yeah, no, this is a huge match, and it's interesting, the names you've mentioned and who they've become, you have mentioned the future Lucha Source and moments in that, by the way, 
that I was not going to pull a lens there and say who it was. But uh, Morrison kind of, for the time, did like the first, as I'm thinking about it, unless I'm blanking on someone, maybe Ray, but doing the first like make big money on the indies after leaving WWE. Because all those places that, that you named, with exception of probably 2CW, they would have paid to get John Morrison there. They would have paid a lot. And, and, and even then, 2CW, they brought in names all the time. I mean, they book guys like Kevin Nash. So I think it was like a weird hybrid of super indie, but also vanity, money mark type stuff. So he probably got a good payday for that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So from there, we've got one other note, which I pulled from the prowrestlingnerd.blogspot.com website. <laughs> And we salute what you. A, what a name. <laughs> we salute what you. What a name. Uh, Drangit USA begins their triple shot in California tonight with Open the Golden Gate 2013. Unfortunately, due to internet issues, the event will not be broadcast live on WWN. Instead, the company will tape the show and put it up on the streaming service soon after. Time ballparked at between 24 and 48 hours. So Gabe talks a big game about how the iPay-Per-View service has been flawless. We've got this figured out. In the first show of 2013, they cannot air live. Yeah, well, I mean, that was the thing that always kind of drove me nuts about their whole Ring of Honor situation. But they, they ran a middle school gym, and you're not going to expect it to have a what well, would be at the time a high-speed uh, connection, especially one for uploading video with all that data. And this is far before. Like, you can do stuff and do, and people have done live shows using Wi-Fi hotspots now. It just wasn't there in 2013. But, yeah, talked a big game. Immediately the first show after, he said, hey, this one's not live. Oh, Gabe. Yeah, well, that takes us to Open the Golden Gate 2013. Mike, are you ready to break down this show? Yes, I am. So, as I mentioned on the Open, Open the, Open the Golden Gate 2013 happened at the Lakeview High School in Santa Maria, California on January 25th, 2013. And we open case, and this is something, I'm having a real production nerd episode this year. This episode I've realized because we open to something that was very clearly shot on an iPhone or on a, on a camera that Gabe Lear says, oh, I have a new screen on my camera for this. It is AR Fox and Brandon Tolley are looking at the lineup and Fox is ready for the weekend. This has to be filmed on an iPhone and it oh, yeah. is insane that Gabe filmed all of the backstage segments for this show on a on an iPhone, which I believe the term I'm looking for is he used a different aspect ratio. Is that it? Yeah, no, no, no. This was uh four by three and it was whatever the camera was there probably was four eighty P. And also remember like the production things where like all the backstage stuff was shot real nice and looked like they put some time and effort even when some things that look pretty bad. Now it's Gabe shooting things on a phone. Yeah, no, this sucked. I mean, this, like, to... It's just one of those things, like, why would you start a show with this? Like, this looks like shit. Yeah, and it's kind of, in a lot of ways, just, uh... Just insulting the people who just paid for a VOW or a VOD that they had to wait for. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good point. You know, imagine firing up the John... Well, and also just the idea... John Morrison's on this show. Akira Tozawa... If you know about the indies at this point, you probably know a little bit about Akira Tozawa. So if you see Morrison working this show, you're probably reaching a newer audience. The crowd here is completely different from the normal Dragon at USA crowd, but the digital audience, big show, former top line WWE star, 
why is that why is this the first thing you you see just show a ton samurai del soul in the ring and get on with it yeah it's just frustrating and that took us to samurai del soul versus ada samurai del soul won this match in nine minutes and 47 seconds with the casadora bomb that i remember us mentioning in the past that this is probably where ada got the idea of the salamander for and boy is ada on this excursion a lot more interesting than i remember him being He's awesome. Uh, it's funny, you know, he was billed on these shows as a mystery young Dragon Gate wrestler. He had just worked a triple shot, and I don't understand why Gabe felt the need to add intrigue to it, but I guess he did. So he comes out, and you know, it's like, oh, it's it's Ata, the guy that was just here. And then, yeah, he and Del Sol have this really, really fun match. They both looked really crisp, which is something that, you know, Del Sol... I, since his debut, I've been a little bit on edge with him, kind of waiting to see if he could deliver or not, and Ata was obviously so young into his career, but I thought they brought it in this match, and I, I know I mentioned it before, but specifically with Del Sol being in the ring with Ata, you look at this, and you think, God, you know, if Del Sol doesn't sign, I know he's being offered a ton of money from Mexico, but what do the Millennials look like if it's T-Hawk, Ata, UT, Yosuke, Santa Maria, and Samurai Del Sol, and obviously it worked out with Flamita and Rocky Lobo. Let's not forget him. But it, you know, it shouts worked. to Rocky Lobo. <laughs> it worked out. I mean, Flamita had an amazing career with Dragon Gate, but you just you kind of watch this and go like, my God, Samurai Del Sol could have owned that company. Like he, I think he would have had a similar trajectory that Flamita had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is kind of an interesting match to kind of look at. And some of the things that were mentioned on commentary, uh, Sammy Callahan did commentary with uh, Lenny Leonard and you know Sammy was was decent on there I mean he, I, I like he him because I Sammy Callahan at least at this point I don't know how he feels now but at this point Sammy Callahan really loved wrestling and I think that was very clear in his commentary he seemed excited to be there yeah exactly exactly uh two things that were mentioned one they made the very uh transparent comment of oh Ada he's being groomed to be the next Shima with 2020 eyes, that's such a statement. Yeah, that did not exactly work out. <laughs> and, the, and then the bigger thing, and I know you were referring to this earlier, they talk about Samurai Del Sol and AAA, and they make a big deal about Samurai Del Sol becoming the next Octagon Junior, which kind of <laughs> fitting with Flamita, that is their link. Both of them have been Octagon Juniors, and it was something that I remember it being such a big deal that Samurai Del Sol finally was in AAA, and he was Octagon Jr. at the time. And it's interesting that how open that was, given how Lucha Libre operates, that now whenever they put people under legacy hoods, usually it's people who know either know the wrestler, know who it is, or they have to pick on, on it by their physical mannerisms. But here, it was a big deal. Samurai Del Sol was named the new... Uh, was named the new Octagon Jr. He would not be it for long, and that's kind of foreboding for what happened to Flamita under that gimmick. Yeah, so just to put it into context, because I, I don't know if I've done a good enough job with this in the notes, but Del Sol at this point is a push commodity and during it USA and Evolve. We talked about how he had the highest guarantee. He was getting flown into shows. Like, Gabe put so much stock into this guy. And he comes into AAA in September of 2012 as himself, and then by no uh, by December, December 2nd, 2012, works as Octagon Jr. for the first time. It's La Parca, Octagon, and Octagon Jr. versus La Parca Negra, Pentagon Jr., and Silver Kane. I would like to track down that match. 
And then from there, he goes back to Evolve. It's him and Generico versus the Super Smash Brothers. And then the 2012 Jeff Peterson Memorial Cup, which Samurai Del Sol wins. He beats Jonathan Gresham, John Davis, Eddie Rios, and AR Fox to win the, the tournament. And now he's here, and he's going over on Dragon Gate's Ata in this opening match that I went three and a quarter on. I thought this was a ton of fun. I went three and a half. I thought this was a blast. That's, that's justified. Uh, I, I probably should have gone higher on it, honestly. Yeah, and like one of the things that like, kind of took me aback, and I know you posted a gif of it, is just how different Ada was at this time as this plucky undercard guy in a lot of ways would not be dissimilar to how Takedo Kame wrestles now, but just he had a different spin on things, and he had a different way of kind of developing it. And, you know, th- these two guys really complement each other. So th- there is the sliding doors theory of what happens if Samurai Del Sol goes to Japan here because these two guys had, like, a lot of chemistry, and it just was a really fun match where Ada sold a lot. He got his big hope spots in, and then, you know, Samurai Del Sol continues his ascent. Yeah, really fun opener, and this is the kind of stuff that, you know, I would just treat this show like you're trying to introduce a new audience to the product, and the iPhone promo is not that, but this is exactly what I would want from an opener. Absolutely, and speaking of iPhone stuff, we cut backstage. It's Chuck's Taylor in the bathroom with Gabe, and this is when they give up the ghost that Gabe is shooting all these promos on his phone. Taylor says that this weekend he's being serious because the Evolve Championship will be decided soon at WrestleCon. And he said he's left the entire gentleman's club at home for that reason. And then, then it yeah, ended that, with that's Gabe the and him. the gentleman's club is at home. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It, it, Chuck Taylor's being serious. That That's definitely why. And then him and Gabe arbitrated the seating for the upcoming Evolve title uh, tournament. Chuck Taylor had the best win and loss record. And the big storyline was he was the person who was doing the best but was not the person that – necessarily Gabe slash Evolve wanted to be the star, but he kind of earned his way into being the star. Which in OG Evolve, that was a good angle because Taylor wrestles in like a preliminary exhibition match on Evolve 1. It doesn't count towards Against the ranking. Cheech. Against Cheech, yes. And then Taylor wins on Evolve 2, and then Evolve 3. Do I have this show right? Hold on. I want to make sure I get these dates entirely correct because I... I I know Evolve 1 was Davey versus Ibushi, and Evolve 2 was Hero versus Hadaka. Yes, Evolve 3, Rise or Fall, the main event of that show, and this is a show that happened in May of 2010. Chuck Taylor goes over clean on Claudio Castagnoli, and it begins this this Chuck Taylor character that wasn't really explored because Evolve just wasn't running that often, but it's... A really interesting point for Chuck Taylor in his career. Then, you know, three years later, they're kind of still running that same story and Evolve. And the promo wasn't great, but I do like the idea of it. Yeah, yeah, no, there's a, there, there's a sound basis there. And it just was one of those things from the union that kind of dips in here. And then with Gabe and the cell phone, that kind of gets to me. But then we go into the second match. It is a locals match, as it is Brian Cage defeating Ray Rosas with the Weapon X and five minutes and 38 seconds and yeah i mean this this was basically a squash uh cage then one this was very much a 2012 brian cage match or 2013 brian cage match and at ringside at the during this match was larry dallas and trina michaels and afterwards they invited brian cage to join the scene and he accepted yeah, this is, uh, it's funny you say this is a very 2013 Brian Cage match, because I was watching it and thinking, like, 
do I miss 2013 Brian Cage? He's really entertaining in this match. Now, now Rosas is a, a good base for him because Rosas was a, a PWG guy who only worked probably less than 10 times in the promotion, but was always one of the locals. And he's a small guy that Cage could throw around. This was a super effective squash. And I, you know, the microphone quality was horrible, but I did like the Larry Dallas promo afterwards inviting Cage to join the scene. Yeah, I mean, for what this match was, it was effective. And Rosas was a guy that still, I mean, he was brought in onto Dark because he was par- tag team partners with Peter Avalon. But, like, they were, like, an established act in Southern California at the time. But, you know, I thought this was an effective squash. I went two and a half. Yeah, it was uh, It was well done. I, I like this era of Brian Cage. Had he not been based in Los Angeles, he would have been a much bigger star sooner but that just never happened. Also, real quick anecdote on Peter Avalon and Ray Rosas. There is a tag team match, PWG All-Star Weekend 10 Night 2. This is at the end of 2013. Rock Nest Monsters versus B-Boy and Willie Mack versus Peter Avalon and Ray Rosas. Go watch that match. It is so much better than it has any right to be. Yeah, because, I mean, those are, like, the six locals that they had at the time, and I actually have this DVD. This match was ended up being a whole lot of fun. That whole show, well, we'll talk about it because it actually, it has Dragon USA implications on this show, uh, many, and now I'm looking at this car, there's a, there's a lot here to dive into, so we'll talk about that about six weeks from now. Sounds good. Then we had the Evolve Rules three-way elimination match. There would be two falls. The big thing for Evolve rankings was only the winner would be credited with a win, so you could win the first fall and then lose in the second, but you'd still suffer a loss. And this had big Evolve title tournament championship implications as it was Chuck Taylor versus A.R. Fox versus John Davis. Chuck Taylor won the match in 13 minutes and 6 seconds. The two falls were after Chuck Taylor and Fox just spamming their big moves, basically, on John Davis. Uh, Fox got the pin with a springboard for 50, and then Chuck also won with with an awful waffle off of a low main pain. And, you know... I thought that this was a real solid three-way. They, they worked this really well for what it was. Mike, did you notice during the entrance of, I believe, John Davis that Lenny Leonard plugged an upcoming FIP show? Yeah, he, he plugged that, and he made sure also to really hammer home point the win-loss record. Yes, yeah, so I, I mentioned the FIP show. It was the first show they had run since the Jeff Peterson Memorial Cup 2011 The 2012 version was technically just an independent show, not even of FIP, but they brought the promotion back on February 1st of 2013 with Everything Burns. Quickly, just because I think it's relevant to Dragon USA, I'm going to read you a few of the matches on there. Stick with me because it it does start on a rocky note. Uh, It is the return of Uha Nation, his first match back since injuring himself in Miami the prior year. He defends the FIP Florida Heritage title against Chase and Rance, but, 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 after that, we get a three-way match with three of my guys. It is Corey Hollis defeating John Schuyler and Mike Cruz. That is the tag team of Alabama Attitude plus Mike Cruz, who was legitimately good. Uh, Maxwell Chicago defeats Mikazi. That is a match that existed. Yeah. And main event FIP World Heavyweight title match. John Davis wins the vacant FIP belt from AR Fox. So that is at least worth noting. That is in the WN Live universe. And we'll probably, I, I actually, I have some thoughts on FIP in 2013. I don't think anybody else does, but I do. So we'll talk about them more as we go along in this year. As for the triple threat match, 
it was a lot of moves. None of them were bad. I understood what they were trying to do. I just don't care about an Evolve rankings triple threat match. No, no, and there's no reason to be. I mean, this is the first time really that they've brought Evolve into DGUSA other than opaquely mentioning it. Yeah, it was like a sudden burst of like, oh, yeah, that's right, there's a union here, but it it was more so happening where Dragon USA stuff would be featured on Evolve cards, and then you had this, and I just, I, it wasn't a, a bad match, but I just did not have any investment in it. Yeah, and part of that also is you have a lot of the uh, John Davis gimmick where he did not do anything for like the first 90 seconds until basically uh, they had a, uh, Fox took down David or Taylor, and then Davis picked up Fox and powerbombed him on Taylor. Bit of an incoherent match and a focus because if you if we're calling this as a shoot, and there's two things and there's two falls, but the only person who wins the final fall cares about this. Wouldn't you want to just like stay out of it, like what John Davis was doing, and not have that as a heel affectation? Wouldn't that have been the smart thing to do? Yeah, I mean, there's it's dumb to have three ways and evolve. When there's a ranking system still, it just defeats the entire purpose. Uh, at least a, an elimination three-way at that, I think, is is very dumb. But yeah, it's, you know, it's weird that you have an explosive powerhouse in John Davis and you give him a gimmick where he does nothing. And I still haven't lived that down yet. But, you know, the, I went with three stars. It was fine. Yeah. And then afterwards, another cell phone promo. This time it's Akira Tozawa. Um, no translation whatsoever for what he was talking about other than I could pull up pull out that he said John Morrison's name partway through Larry Dallas and Brian Cage interrupt and and Akira Tozawa and Larry Dallas are on the same page because they both because they were with together and Mad Blanky at Kobe World 2012. Yeah this was a super fun backstage segment it's Larry Brian Cage Trina Michaels and Akira Tozawa and it is a weird thing to realize that in kayfabe Larry Dallas had a ton of power. He's managing the scene, which now has Brian Cage, and he's. This is the first time they've really referenced him also kind of being Mad Blanky affiliated, too, which is a, a landmine that, you know, they could have very easily tripped and stumbled over, but I thought this was a nice little segment. Yeah, this was good fun here. And then we went into a tag match. This was the Jimmy's team of Jimmy Susumu and Rio Jimmy Saito defeating. The former Ronin team of Johnny Gargano and Rich Swan, when Jimmy Susumu hit the Mugen on the Open the Freedom Gate champion, Johnny Gargano, this match was 20, 20 minutes and 53 seconds. It was the longest match on the card. I need your thoughts on this match before I give mine, Mike. Okay, that's fair. Um, This was something that, and I've really, after talking about the next match, I really kind of came to something about this because this match was worked pretty, like, deliberately in a way this match there was a moment then when they kind of like went go and then it kind of like kind of kicked into gear uh rich swan kind of was the star of this match he took almost all the heat and then gargano really only came in for like the last seven minutes of the match and i really liked that it was a surprise upset from jimmy susumu on the champion i feel like that because you like would look at this match and especially if you look at gauge match without watching the show you're like oh I guess one of them hit a move on Rich Swan, but no, he pinned the Open the Freedom Gate champion here. I really liked it, but it's also one of those things that I really like the four of these guys as tag team wrestlers, and I give us four stars. I went four as well, and this is a match that I, I did not remember liking upon, you know, years ago when I watched this on DVD. 
I think it starts really slow to it. I was kind of preparing to bury this match at one point, and then you're exactly right. Rich Swan is the star of this match, and he puts on an effort that is incredible, and he ends up dragging Saito into the crowd, caring about him. Uh, Swan and Susumu, I-, I don't think they ever had a singles match together, which just seems like a horrible mismanagement opportunity. I mean, how you don't throw those guys in the ring and just say, go at it, I don't know. And then Gargano, you know, picked his spots, came in at the end, but when he came in, I thought he was excellent in this match as well. And the puzzling thing about this match is the Evolve 3-way we just talked about received a This Is Awesome chant from the crowd, and I didn't feel like the crowd was super into this. This did not get a This Is Awesome chant, but this match was so much better than the Evolve 3-way. Yeah, no, this match, I, I mean, when you have these four guys here, and it, and it was kind of like that the seven minutes of John Gargano were exactly the seven minutes of John Gargano that we needed. The one thing that, now that I'm like looking at this, that I did not look ahead, Jimmy Susumu got a clean, definitive fall on the Open the Freedom Gate champion, and through 2013, and I don't believe he comes in 2014, but I'm just going to do that to verify this to be sure. Yes, he did not. Never got a title shot against uh, Johnny Gargano for this. And that kind of like irks me when I'm looking and seeing what Jimmy Susumu did for his remainder of his time in Dragon Gate USA. Well, make a note of that because that match, I will have to check the notes. That match might have been planned at some point and for various reasons, it got pulled. Now, also Gabe might've just not booked the follow-up, which is very possible. Make a note of that because when Susumu returns at the end of 2013, I know that card got shuffled around, and even though Susumu ends up on those shows, that match might have been altered, and I forget what exactly happened there. No, no, I made a note of that, just because that's one of those dangling threads that usually don't dangle with Gabe. And, you know, kind of a weird thing that I was like, oh yeah, no, no, knowing Gabe, now uh, Susumu's going to get a title shot, and that never happened. I was shocked when Susumu pinned Gargano. Swan, you know, right. if Swan takes the fall, it's no big deal, but he pinned Gargano. So it is, it, it'll be a, a major disappointment. I, I will check my notes after the show because it's going to take me a minute to find it. If that match was never booked, I, which I, I think is the case, then that is a, a flaw of Gabe's booking there and something that he's typically better about. Right. No, absolutely. We got a WWN live promo up. I don't know if I mentioned this earlier but there was a promo for mercury rising 2012 so you know get talked about those being in production and they're in production now but then we had a another locals match this was julian cash versus kevin divine it went 43 seconds there was no contest because john davis came out here and he completely destroyed the two local guys and i guess an attempt to get his heat back in a way i don't know it just john john davis doesn't like local talent i don't know julian cash I don't know Kevin Devine. I don't know if they're still wrestling. If they are, I'm sure they're better than they were in 2013. But the 43 seconds of this match are insane in the way that they do wrestling. There is a change spot early on that is, it's like, sometimes you'll see a jaded guy on like an RF video shoot interview where he's like, oh, kids today don't even they don't even know how to lock up. They just go through the motions. And normally I think that's bullshit, but in this case, they just do stuff that they've seen before, but it does not flow together at all. 
And then Davis comes in and kills him, and it, it's fine. You know, Davis does a good job in that role, but the Cash Divine sequence that we got, unbelievably bad. Oh, just terrible. And even in the beatdown, uh, Jul- uh, Julian Cash almost kills himself on the buckle bomb because he almost goes over the, the top buck top ring buckle onto the floor. Did you notice I, I, that? I gotta be honest. I, I don't know if there was a way to do it safely, but he should have just taken the bump to the floor. He saves it and it kind of lessens the blow of the initial buckle bomb. He, I, I'm sure he didn't mean to do it intentionally, but he almost stumbled into like an all time great bump and then like stopped it from happening, which was probably good for his safety, but disappointing for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I did, did do a little bit of a quick search. Uh, Julian Cash is out of wrestling by the end of 2013. He mainly just works Vendetta Pro, which is where they got the venue from because they were using a Vendetta Pro uh, microphone uh, cover the entire time. Kevin Devine was wrestling as of 2019. Only 74 matches of him are on cage match. He did go to Mexico a fair deal, but a lot of it was just uh, independent shows in Mexico. So, yeah, there, know, there was a just, Vendetta Pro pipeline there into some weird, grimy Mexican indies. It, you know, Ven, Vendetta Pro supposedly ran a pre-show before this card, but I could not find the Vendetta Pro match listing anywhere. But it's advertised as happening, but it's not on Cage Match, unfortunately. And this is just a good representation of how weird these Southern California indies truly are. Yeah, it's just wild. Uh, Actually, I just found their card. What you got for me, Mike? Uh, so we have Little Cholo defeating El Scorpio del Combate and SoCal Crazy. That rocks. We have we have a uh, we have a battle royal where Rick Luxury, by the way, Rick is spelled R I K because of course it is, defeats question mark question mark question mark Clay Tauzer, Damon Grundy, DK Murphy, El Mondicio, though, uh, Kevin Devine, Melissa Coates, uh, Nathan Gray's Ricky Ruffin and the Drunken Irishman. Uh, Tag team match involves one of those teams is just all over California Indies at the time. Caden uh, Anthony and Tsunami without a T defeat or versus the Ballard brothers, Shane and Shannon Ballard in a double countout. Billy Blade defeated Famous B. Bo Cooper and the Creep Show of JD Horror and Sledge defeat Drake Younger and Parental Discretion of Mario Banks and Mike Minnis. Yeah, these are the guys PWG should have been booking instead of Chris Hero, Zack Sabre Jr., and Tommy End. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. Uh, Mike Menace, who worked a whole lot of APW in the early 2000s. Uh, Lenny Leonard was on the call of the show. I, the I saw that. I, I had that information, but I couldn't find the card anywhere. That's a bad job out of me. But yeah, Lil B, or I'm sorry, Famous B, Lil Cholo, and Drake Younger, who we'll talk about these next two weeks, and I'm like bummed about it. I have a I have a lot of thoughts on Drake that I I'll get into next week. I'm disappointed that I I'm not disappointed. I'm bummed that I have to watch his matches from a time period that I really liked Drake as a wrestler and seemingly as a person, and obviously that's changed. But this is the SoCal Indies in 2013. Yep. Speaking of SoCal, we have probably the most notable SoCal wrestlers of this generation. The Young Bucks, with a promo from one of their houses, they uh, they talk about how the boys are back in town, that they're champions across the world, they want the United Gate champions, and he says that they say that DUF are not elite, and they will be a stroll through the weekend. They compare themselves to the Dream Team, and then they made a crack about, oh, why is Shima not here to finish the titles? He must have broken his neck again. 
awesome promo. So good. Yeah, this is like them kind of coming to their own as heel promos, whereas they were they have never been very good to face promos. But you know, you, you could easily draw a through line between 2020 Young Bucks and this promo in 2013. Yeah, no, they call themselves elite. They they mock some people. It's it's a really good promo, and I. I, this one's on YouTube if you look it up, but I, I did not remember this promo being as, as good as it was, but quite honestly, it, it blew me away. I was just not expecting a good 2013 Young Bucks promo. Yep, and speaking of the Young Bucks, they are in the semi-main event. It is the Young Bucks versus the DUF of Sammy Callahan and Eric Cannon. The Young Bucks went in 18 minutes and 10 seconds after they hit more bang on your more bang for your buff on Sammy Callahan. And this was the match of the night. But also, when you look at these people and what time this is and other stuff on the card, this was like the match that was made to excel. And I feel like that this match delivered on that. I'm going to pause my thoughts on the matches because, or on this match, because while I was watching this, I thought, man, I don't know if I've ever seen the Young Bucks and Sammy Callahan in the same ring together. They seem like they just represent different sides of the independence. So, you know, a little cage match shirts goes a long way. I- I'm going to quickly read you just because I find it to be very funny. The four Young Bucks, Sammy Callahan interactions. Is that all right with you? Yeah, go right ahead. WXW 16 karat gold 2010 switchblade conspiracy of John Moxley and Sammy Callahan versus the Young Bucks. That sounds awesome. I'd like to see that. After that, we go to this match, which we'll talk about in just a second. A 2017 PWG match of Adam Cole and the Young Bucks versus the Oink team of Dave Chris, Jake Chris, and Sammy Callahan. I remember that match being a lot of fun. And the match that makes this all worth it, I have no fucking recollection of this happening. Night 4 of the Jericho Cruise, Team Impact Wrestling of Brian Cage, Ortiz, Santana, Sammy Callahan, and Johnny Impact... Versus the Mushroom Kingdom of Bowser, Luigi, Mario, Wario, and Yoshi, which was Cody, Matt Jackson, Nick Jackson, Marty Skrull, and Hangman Page. What what is that, Mike? What did I miss? Well, I think there was like a costume day, and you know the elite like to dress up in costumes there. But boy, you like look at that list of names on that show, and I, I imagine why they didn't. This is one of the things they didn't take for Ring of Honor that year because that impact people, but. You look at those names and you look at where they are a year later and it's kind of remarkable, isn't it? World Intergender title match. James Ellsworth defeats Jenny Rose. That is the semi-main event of that show. Moving on. Um, <laughs> oh, so oh. you're really into this match. I am not. I-, I thought this was kind of a disappointment. It just, it was too long to be a brawl, like a like a classic Young Bucks just throw shit at the wall and Sammy Callahan doing what he does best. And it, it never had the pacing of an epic. It was kind of just this awkward in-between. I ended up going three and a quarter on it. I just never thought this match found its groove. All right, so I'll give the case to defend this match. It, it's something that when I mentioned earlier about these matches kind of fit, that gave those a good job of saying like, all right, the first tag match, the one with the Jimmies versus the former Roman members. This match will make most sense if we have it be like, okay, this is going to be Rich Swan sells his ass off, then John Gargano comes in and is a house of fire until he's beat. This one was a little bit like more of what a Young Bucks match would end up being after this match. We have the Bucks completely healing out the entire time. 
they did a really like good job of them healing onto Eric Cannon and then preventing a tag. And then you had Callahan just having a tremendous house of fire. It was really like one of the few times like, oh yeah, no, Callahan is actually a strong tag team wrestler, but eventually they get steamrolled. And I felt like that this was, especially considering like where these two guys would be and by the end of 2013, I feel like this match did a bunch of showing that DUF were, they were not on the Bucks level, but they gave them a good fight. And, you know, I just kind of like appreciated this kind of match for what it was and how it's kind of a nucleus of how the Bucks would be for the remainder of the decade. I think that's a really fair assessment of the match. I don't disagree with any of that. It just, it, you know, it's a Young Bucks match that didn't register with me, so clearly I'm the problem. I, I mean, as the person who's written the controversial, the Bucks are the best tag team not, in wrestling not, not history. Not controversial, brother. I stated facts there, all right? <laughs> you, Mike, you take your feelings somewhere else, okay? I'm talking about facts over here. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> you, your factually correct article about the Bucks being the best tag team of all time. And, you know, I feel like that this was, and I say this a lot about these kind of matches, this felt kind of like a touring match of, like, the stars coming to town and they have a spirited match against your local guys, but then the the local guys just can't take it take it from the uh, champions and they end up losing, and I found that kind of intriguing. It did feel important. I will give it that. Like, seeing these two teams in the ring, this is the first time Callahan and Cannon had teamed in a two-on-two match since the Open the United Gate match they had at the end of 2011, so we didn't see them as a team for an entire year, and seeing them back together felt big, quite honestly. I don't know. I just I I did not like this match as much as you, but I we've got two more Young Bucks matches coming up that I'm sure I'll love. So everything is right in the universe. Yeah, and the Bucks take the microphone after the match. They basically repeat the same promo that they did on the pre-tape, but they had to make sure to call out Shima and Air Fox, and they called them dweebs because that's a strong word in the Bucks playbook. That's sick as hell. I liked it. I mean, you're the only person that, that thinks that tweet as a put down in 2020 is sick. Just, <laughs> just, just stating I'll that. I'll die on that cross. Record. I don't mind. Yeah. And then we had DGUSA promo before we got into our main event. Akira Tozawa versus John Morrison. John Morrison got the win in 18 minutes and 45 seconds. I'm interested to see what you think about this because I came away with one of my thoughts of, oh, this match was kind of set the stage for how some matches would be like in the future. Uh, yeah, no, I think we're on the same page. This was the most boring possible match that these guys could have had. John Morrison on the indies always sucked. Uh, Eminem as a tag team is one of my favorite acts in wrestling history. Now, granted, it was just my childhood, but that whole deal, like, I love that. They have awesome tag team matches, and maybe you disagree, and I'll be sh- I'd be shocked if you did, but... I thought this match was super boring, and Morrison's a guy who AAW brought in a bunch, and I always thought he sucked there, and I have no interest watching him now, because he's on the main roster in WWE, no thank you, but he is consistently maybe the most disappointing wrestler there is, because he's always kind of exciting on paper, and dude never delivers. And it's something that you bring up the MMM team, and... A lot of like my fond memories of that aren't Morrison stuff. They are uh, Mercury. Things. Mercury getting his face busted open by a ladder. Well, yeah, I mean that—that's the thing. That's the one thing that comes to mind about this. And 
the thing that I said, like, I know I've kind of made references about this before. This is like a WrestleCon Super Show match that, like, this is the gear they're going to go in. Tozawa tried, and it wasn't like Morrison's like, I'm just not going to do anything. I don't care who you are. Morrison obviously knew, or they, they obviously, like, planned out stuff that looked like that Morrison knew enough about Akira Tozawa to, like, kind of counter into some of the things and being able to kind of play off the trademarks. But, yeah, this is the paint-by-the-numbers w- former WWE guy coming into your territory and facing your biggest star. And it just, you watch it, and you're like, oh, this is a match where I feel like I should be have, like, more like passion towards or i feel like that i should care about a whole lot more but these two guys don't do anything to make you like feel like this match deserves that the wrestlecon analogy is perfect mike i'm so angry i didn't think of that that's exactly what this match was and and fitting because if you look at morrison's history wrestlecon 2015 he wrestles ach i'm sure people were pumped when that match was announced and i'm sure it was no good wrestlecon 2017 he wrestles brian cage in a tlc match which i have no memory of and i know i watched all these shows that does not sound familiar at all which means it wasn't good that is the same show by the way as the bobby Lashley Jeff Cobb match. Do you remember that? I remember it happening, but I've never watched the show. A biggest disappointment there's ever been. I was so. I, oh, is this the one where he's wearing sweatpants? Is this the Bobby Lashley <laughs> sweatpants match? I don't. I don't think. I don't know that story. I don't think this is that match. But it's like Lashley and Cage. Like they're two beasts that are going to throw each other around, and they do like side headlocks. That match sucks so much. And then uh, Impact Johnny Impact and Taya Valkyrie versus the Lucha Brothers on the penis party show last year. Oh my God, that sounds horrible. So unfortunately, uh, Mundo's J- John Morrison, he's got too many names. It, it, unfortunately, yeah, he's just never any good. I gave this match a gentleman's three because the crowd was into it. The crowd liked it, but no, this match, it just, it was just there. And you brought the crowd and I think that's something I had my notes. This crowd was a lot younger skewing you would hear the chants and they would have definitely like a youthful like sound to them versus what you'd normally anticipate there. So it's clear that like having John Morrison on the top of the card brought in differing fan bases that you usually would not see on DGUSA, but this match just overall was underwhelming. And it's one of those matches that like hits the notes and you can be like, Oh yeah, I can see why people still brought in Morrison to do these shows. And the thing that I remember about that Lashley match was that it was like that he came and he was, like, sitting at, like, the merch table, and he walked from, like, the merch table to the ring, like, wearing sweatpants. Like, that, that might not happen. Good for him. I mean, that might not have happened, but I distinctly remember there was a match that that uh, Bobby Lashley had during a Mania weekend where he basically, like, showed up in, like, his leisure gear, and he just did not do anything because Bobby Lashley does, never did anything on anything outside of Impact. Well, if you remember that Bobby Lashley memory specifically, tweet us at OpenVoiceGate. Let us know. The only time that that account will have Bobby Lashley interactions going on on it. But that's okay. And uh, Mike, that, yeah, that's Open the Golden Gate. That show existed. Yeah, I went two and a half stars on that main event. It just was like. That's fair. As soon as I sniffed out what that match was, and it kind of came when I noticed the crowd being so young. I was like, oh, yeah, this is what this match is. I'm not going to care about it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting crowd. I remember picking up on this the first time I watched the DVD, that it is mostly children in the audience. And, you know, they're into parts of the show and they're not into parts of the show. It's a very different audience than what Dragon Gate USA typically worked in front of. And 
I don't I don't know if it greatly affected the card all that much. I think had they been more into the Saito Susumu versus Gargano and Swan tag match, that match could have been elevated a little bit. That was my only match I had at four stars. Everything else was, you know, there. And uh, I, I didn't hate this show, but it also wasn't that good. It was pedestrian. Yeah, very much so. Very pedest- and the show ended out with the Bucks hanging the ring immediately afterwards, laying out John Morrison. They they cut a promo calling uh, John Morrison a reject, and then Fox came for the save. The two of them lay out the Bucks. The Bucks kind of uh, scamper off. They grab the microphone, and then the Bucks, and then John Morrison said, "The Bucks should join Three and B sign of WWE, so it'd be a five man band." Which made me realize was Three and B a thing in this time period because. That felt like, I was like, that can't be the case. That sounds really early, because Heath Slater was doing the thing where he was losing to all those legends in 2012, but I guess, I guess they would have been doing it at that time. I I did not even pick up on that line that I know they, they formed, let me, let me see the earliest 3MB sighting I can. That is October of 2012. Yeah. Heath Slater and Jinder Mahal versus Santino Morello and Zack Ryder. That aired on TV. That is crazy. I missed that line in the Morrison promo. And I I would have guessed that happened like a year later. TLC 2012. Alberto Del Rio, the Brooklyn Brawler, and the Miz defeat three-man band. Yeah. Yeah. No. That all tracks. (laughs) Alberto Del Rio, one of the worst wrestlers I've ever seen. Thank God we don't have to rewatch his ROH run that was so woefully overrated anytime soon. And that is my final hot take on this episode, Mike. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is a pedestrian show that you kind of wonder like if this is how the twenty thirteen will end up being because countless times during the show they're like, oh, WrestleCon, WrestleCon, WrestleCon. Like that like the most over thing for like the wrestlers was the fact that WrestleCon is coming over Mania weekend. They do a really good job of putting that whole weekend over, and I, you know, we'll talk about it when we get to it. I think that weekend has to be looked at as a success. Right, right, and I don't know if I call this show a success. You know, it's just very weird show, very pedestrian, but weird. I think the fact that it didn't air on iPay-Per-View live negates any possible success that could have come from it, come from it because you didn't build your audience in the way that you would hope with John Morrison. And they obviously never returned to this building. So, no, it's, this was one of the weaker shows we've seen. But luckily, next week, Drangit USA Revolt 2013 from Huntington Park, California. I like this card on paper. I haven't seen this show in a very long time, but I'm looking forward to revisiting it. Eric Cannon versus Chuck Taylor. An eight-way SoCal fray featuring names like Johnny Goodtime, Brian Cage, and the return of Brian Kendrick, Rich Swan versus Ata, AR Fox versus Samurai Del Sol, Akira Tozawa versus Sammy Callahan, the Young Bucks versus the Jimmies, and your main event, open the Freedom Gate title, no ropes match, Johnny Gargano versus John Davis. Case, I'm going to have a story about this show. And a story, uh, you know... It, it, I'm not going to try to upsell the story. It, it is something that happened on the show, and this has been one of the shows I've been dreading just because of the interaction and what happened between me and Gabe Sapolsky before the show. I, I know vaguely what happens, but I don't remember the story. So, Mike, I look forward to talking to you next week and hearing all about that. Yeah, and, you know, th- I'm going to be interested in seeing this entire show, especially looking at the show and that set of three singles matches 
after the fray are all really, really interesting to me, given where we are in 2013. Very much so. Yep. And that will be after that show, after the show today, we have 12 more episodes. We have 12 more DGUSA shows. So we're entering, entering the final dozen of DGUSA. We're now really in the backstretch. We will be through 2013 before we know it, Case. And, you know, th- we're now really at a point where we are in the uh, backslide here. Like, this is it. There's good shows coming up. I think you're going to like 2013 more than you realize. I mean, it, we'll, we'll get into a reason why I was also against 2013 GGUSA next week. But unless you have anything else, I think we're done with this episode. I think we're going to get out of here. That's it, Mike. All right. You can follow us on Twitter at OpenVoiceGate. You can follow Case at underscore in your case. And you can follow me on Twitter at Fujiheya. For Case, I'm Mike. And thank you for listening to Open the Voice Gate. Take care.